Let's pray together. As we read this morning from your word, Lord God, from your prophet Micah, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He will again have compassion and tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And we praise you, our God, this morning that you are the great, merciful, glorious God. And we worship and adore you this morning as your people, been saved by you, Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God. You have brought salvation to us, and you are our Savior God. We pray this morning, too, as we look into the gospel according to Luke, Lord Jesus, that we would see your work and your promises for us, that we would understand your teaching and your blessings that will come to us at your return. And we pray for that. We also look forward to this coming week and the summer, the ministries that this church is a part of and two come to mind immediately. And that is this concert coming up next Sunday. Not only will it be a wonderful time of worship for us, but a, a time when the gospel will go forth clearly to those in attendance. And we pray that you would bring people to hear the message of good news and to put their faith in you, Lord Jesus. And we also just continually lift up Vacation Bible School and the opportunity for the gospel to go forth multiple times every day to just so many families, children, and parents and homes in our community. We pray that you raise up the staff that we need to fully staff it for this summer and that you would move upon the hearts of the families that you would be bringing into our midst and that you would open their hearts to the message of salvation. We pray these things for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and the question that we would be considering this morning is a pretty simple one. It's a question you have. When's Jesus coming back? And uh, how are we going to know when it's really close that he's coming back? Well, Jesus' return is a perennial topic of general interest and great personal interest to all Christians. It's a great hope that we have, and we find it in almost every page of the New Testament that Jesus is going to be coming back soon. But that question of timing, that question of when, is a question that we need to make sure we answer honestly and biblically, and ultimately trust that the biblical answer is going to be enough to satisfy us. That's that's extremely important that the biblical answer has to satisfy the true Christian, to stay within the bounds of what Scripture teaches us clearly. I mean, the disciples of the early church found the satisfaction in Jesus' words. And Luke sends that same message to us and to the church. You know, Jesus was perfectly clear in answering the questions exactly the way he wanted to answer them. And it's precisely the answer that God wants us to know and the one in which we're supposed to find our hope and our strength and our peace. So if you want, you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5. I've also printed the text for you in your bulletins if you want to follow along there. We'll read each section as we go since they're so, so lengthy this morning. But Luke wants us to understand this end-time sermon of Jesus. 
so that we would be strengthened in our hope and so that we would be most involved in the mission, proclaiming the gospel to a world that is in distress. That's the takeaway from this passage. The first half, really, of this message that Jesus gives that we're looking at this morning is that the church should take all opportunities to engage a world in distress and witness about Jesus Christ. You know, the disciples, as we read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, the disciples are asking questions here at this point in the storyline of, you know, so when, when Jesus is this going to happen that you're talking about when the temple is going to be destroyed, and when are you coming back, and the end of time, and what, how's the kingdom, how does that all fit together? And of course, the disciples are mixing up a lot of questions that don't necessarily get all their answers in the same time frame. And instead, the reality is that there's going to be a long delay, a time for the mission to be accomplished. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus actually gives a fourfold answer to that question of what, when is this going to be? First of all, in verses 5 to 7, he says, yes, the temple's going to be destroyed soon. But then also in verses 8 to 11, he says, you know, there are three unreliable signs that you should not be relying on for when exactly I'm going to return, verses 8 through 11. And then in 12 to 19, he brings up the most important matter regarding his return, and that's our witness. And then he circles back to answer the question directly and tells them in verses 20 to 24, yes, the city is going to be captured soon. So this passage we're looking at this morning, it's known as the Olivet Discourse. It has parallels in Matthew 23 and Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And you can read those over and try to integrate them all on your own. It's actually not too complicated, even though it's a, a lengthy sermon of Jesus. But today we're going to be focusing on Luke's presentation. And we're going to actually take two weeks to cover the whole of the passage. And that fits the pace sort of we've been going at through Luke and the, and the depth that we've been at and, and the amount of time we want to spend on certain passages but the important thing to understand when we come to a section like this in the gospel accounts is that the form of discourse that Jesus is using and that the writers are presenting to us mix together historically near events that are coming with future events that would be coming, with present things that are happening at the time, and they're all brought together as a way to talk about the future and also to talk about the immediate present. And it requires a lot of humility on the part of the interpreter to be able to try to separate those aspects because they're not always easy to do. In fact, we've probably all sensed it ourselves when we read through passages like this or passages in the Old Testament, and we wonder to ourselves, is that something that already happened? Or is that something that's going to be happening? Or is that something that's happening right now? And we sort of wonder how it all fits together. Well, a few notes here for you to, to keep in mind is you can look at Matthew's account, and Matthew, as he records Jesus' discourse here, um, he focuses primarily upon the eschatological, the final, the end aspect of Jesus' message. Mark, when you read his gospel account, he pretty much focuses very equally on both what's going on in the, in the near future for the people as Jesus was talking to his disciples and what would be happening at the very end. But Luke focuses primarily on the historical aspect. And so the first part that we're looking at today uh, primarily would happen within the next few decades. And so it makes it easy for us because he separates them. 
And the second part is almost entirely future, which we'll look at uh, in the next section of Luke when we get to it. But perhaps Luke separates them also to emphasize a theme of his gospel, and that there's a delay in the coming a return of Jesus for the second time, and that's for the purpose of mission. The purpose, which is Luke's gospel, whole gospel message, is that salvation is now for the whole world. And so Luke is convinced, and he seeks to convince us, his readers, that the church should take all opportunities to engage a world in distress with the gospel of hope and peace. So Luke records Jesus' sermon, and he starts off with a startling truth that the temple's going to be destroyed very soon. In verses 5 through 7, we read in chapter 21, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, that's Jesus, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? You see, Jesus and his disciples had different observations about the temple in Jerusalem. This is, you know, Jesus teaching in his final week in the, in the city. You know, he'd been teaching in the temple area, and now some of the disciples are marveling at its glory. You know, Herod's temple had been under construction at this point for about 50 years. It would soon be, you know, be completed. And it was adorned with large white stones of marble overlaid with gold. The offerings that are mentioned here are offerings that were given to, uh, to build this, this amazing temple. It would be twice the size almost as a previous one, taking up a sixth of the city. It'd be magnificent, actually opulent, and uh, as glorious as something could be built at the time. And so they're marveling at this, and Jesus then destroys their imaginations in a moment by saying that it's all going to be destroyed someday in approximately 40 years. Jesus declares that this temple is going to be destroyed down to the very last stone. And though that's idiomatic for total destruction, Titus, the Roman general, fulfilled that prophecy to exact detail. It would happen in AD 70 when Rome would conquer and set it on fire. The fire would be, then would be, the whole place would be utterly demolished, and all that would be left would be that portion of the southwest wall and two gates on the south side. It would happen really just six years after it was completed. All of that effort, all of that money, all of that glory when that Roman general took over the city. What a tragedy. And so then the disciples ask a question, so when are these things going to take place? And they're obviously very troubled by Jesus' description, and they see, of course, a connection to the establishment of him being the Messiah and his kingdom is brought out in all the Gospels. I mean, it's who they start seeing Jesus as he really is at this point, and believing him and hoping him to really be as the Messiah, and that he would bring the kingdom. And it was understood that when that day would come, there would be great judgments along with great blessings all over the place. And so they ask when these things will happen and what's going to be the sign. In Matthew, it's recorded this way, Matthew 24, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? So they're asking a question that's way more complex than they realize. You see, it's not so simple 
as that question. And I hope that we realize, too, that we ask those same types of questions even today about Jesus coming again. You see, what they didn't understand, that they needed to understand, that the fall of the city and the return of Jesus were not as closely related in time as they believed them to be at that time. The temple would be destroyed soon, yes, but Jesus' return would not be very soon. And so the application for us as the church is to, first of all, is that our questions and assumptions and our desires to know the finer details of end times are not always on target. And they're not always going to be answered very specifically. And the limit to the answers is what's in Scripture. And that's where we need to be satisfied with God's answer that He gives us in Scripture. In other words, be satisfied with God Himself. And where, this is where Jesus goes next in answering this question is the church should take opportunities to engage a world in distress, not to try to end the distress or leave the distress or hide from the distress, but to witness about Jesus Christ. And so he begins by giving three unreliable signs of his return. People, people seem to always want signs and to point to them. And so he tells them about three sets of signs not to rely upon to be able to predict with certainty a particular date or time. That is false Christs and false prophets in verse 8. In verses 9 and 10, political upheavals. And in verse 11, natural disasters. These are not certain signs. And so we read then following after the question in verse 8, see to it that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not come at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So the first one is about false Christs, false prophets. I mean, there's going to be false prophets from that day forward, holding up signs, using bullhorns, speaking on TV, writing books, all saying that the end is near. And yes, they'll even claim to be emissaries of Christ himself, but they're deceivers. The end is near, certainly, in a prophetic sense of Scripture, but not as most of those types of people tend to mean near, meaning now. And false Christ will arise, those people who claim to be the Messiah or claim to have seen the Messiah somewhere. In fact, I was very surprised on one mission trip a number of years ago. I was in East Asia, and people told me that they had seen Jesus the Messiah. And it was a woman. And it deceived the church, still deceives the church. Self-proclaimed Messiahs have come and gone throughout history. We've had our own share here in our country. Some are charismatic, some are crazy, some are more reasonable, but all of them can entice a great number of people, and that's the real danger. And yet, even this is part of God's plan to purify His church, to judge, and to call out true believers. But as Jesus says, don't believe them, don't follow them, any of them, and stand firm. The Apostle Paul would later write in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit 
or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So not only are there going to be false prophets and false, prophets and false Christs, there are going to be political upheavals, there are all sorts of things that happen that aren't signs that the end is immediate. In verses 9 and 10, again, we read here, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So there's going to be wars, there's going to be revolutions, uprisings, even terrorist attacks, yes. They're all a must, but they're not immediate predecessors to the return of Christ, as so many people want to tell you, and use those signs to get you to follow them for their own power or to give them money, but it's going to stunt your faith and stop your growth in Christ. But don't be afraid of them, and don't let certain Christian newscasters color your view of the world and Scripture with their spin and hype. So those aren't going to be certain signs either. And then natural disasters. In verse 11, there's going to be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. There'll be these earthquakes, famines, epidemics throughout the earth. There are going to be events in the heavens that terrify people at various times. And any of these and many of these will be used as signs. But still, the return is far off, Jesus says. Jesus warns that wars and disasters of nature are going to come upon the whole world, but they're not certain signs of his imminent end. Rather, they're only the beginning of birth pangs, as Matthew and Mark record. The beginning. These signs are very general that Jesus has talked about so far in Luke, and, and sometimes they come in greater intensity and waves in our experience, or at least our knowledge of what's going on in the world. And that's why they're not sure signs of the end. They're indicators of the end's certainty coming and provide hope. That's their use for us. But they're not signs specifically of Jesus' return. They should keep pointing us with confidence and hope and with our heads lifted high that Jesus is coming back and we look forward to that. But Jesus here is giving this warning to his disciples about these three unreliable signs because people are going to use those types of signs as if they're reliable, but Jesus says they're not reliable. They're signs of hope, as I've mentioned, to be realized that certainty that Jesus is coming back in general, but they're not signs for prediction of timing. And members of the kingdom of God, believers in Jesus Christ, should not fear the events themselves, even though they can be awful, but have peace in the midst of distress Jesus inaugurated his kingdom, and he is going to come back and consummate it. And during this interval of delay, God has ordained conflicts and catastrophes, like birth pangs, like signs given to us, anticipating the birth of a new order. That's a prophetic way of speaking about the coming of the final stage of the kingdom of God. So we must not, according to Jesus, be overly concerned with present indicators or our sufferings, The disciples in the church have to be aware of false expectations raised by many misreaders of signs. Because you see, if you start chasing those things, you're going to exhaust your soul. And you're going to end up having a deflated hope, not a stronger one. And that's because those people misdirect your focus and they use the Word of God incorrectly. 
And Jesus is very serious about this warning. So don't let it dampen your enthusiasm, though, for Christ's return, but rather increase it, as we'll be talking about in a moment. But this interview, inter, interval of delay is going to be a long one. It's not yet over. But nevertheless, Jesus' return, yes, as Roman says, is sooner than it was before. And there's very good reason for this delay because the church should be taking opportunities to minister to a world in distress, to witness about where Jesus, to witness about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now we get to the important matter in this whole first part of the message in verses 12 to 19. And that's this. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they'll put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So we get these persecution details in verses 12 and 13, and then witnessing instructions in verses 14 and 15. And then we get the extent of persecution and hope described for us in verses 16 to 19. But in these details at the beginning in verses 12 and 13, he simply says, before all this, they're going to lay your hands on you, persecute you, deliver you up to synagogues and prisons. It'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So, of course, he's speaking immediately to his apostles. They're going to be arrested. Well, you can read it. It comes next in the book of Acts. They're going to be arrested, tried, abused, even killed. Their lives are going to mirror the life of their Lord. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 12. In fact, you see the pattern even portrayed throughout the whole life of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. But all this persecution is the plan of God for the witness to the world about Christ. And the point is not just for the apostles, but for the whole church of the apostles ever since. They speak about a reality that's that's true for all followers of Jesus throughout the world, throughout history. And sometimes more so, sometimes less, even today in many places around the world. I mean, we will follow in the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that is all for verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So here are the instructions. Verse 14, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You see, because answers to persecution can never be prepared very well in advance anyway in human wisdom. Have you ever stood before a persecutor? And when we try to do this, we notice very quickly that our effectiveness of our answers evaporate very quickly. That's because persecutors have no interest in the truth. They just want to get their designs accomplished. So instead, Jesus says that they, speaking to the apostles and of course to us through Luke, that 
we should rest in the assurance that Jesus is going to give us the words to speak at the time. I mean, think about Jesus. He was very successful at this. I mean, he's the example. And so were the apostles, by the way, because they followed his instructions. I mean, we've already seen Jesus as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke and the five controversies that preceded this, how good he was at silencing his enemies. He will empower by his Spirit to do exactly what he did. But we just need to be prepared that we're going to get similar treatment as he received. So these apostles and and we, we must remember that speaking effectively, though, in spiritual terms when the God gives us the words to say, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get released. Freedom's nice, but freedom's not the goal. It's not necessarily gospel success to be released. But what we're really looking for is the gospel to succeed in saving many and in bringing judgment to many. So those are his instructions, and then he goes on to talk about the extent of this. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated for all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. So the persecution for them and for Christians would be even from parents, siblings, and relatives. I mean, that's really hard to imagine in a lot of ways for some of us, because We have believing families that we live in, or at least families that are nice to us. And this is, of course, a reference to Micah chapter 7 is what he's referring to here. It's hard to believe on the one hand, but yet perhaps we can see it. We've been hated by family members before or betrayed by friends. And the reason for the hatred, as you know, has very little to do with you. It has to do with Jesus, or they'll say it's you. But it's really Jesus. And that's good to know. Because in the end, you're doing it and you're suffering and you're enduring for the glory of Jesus anyway, not your own. The Apostle Peter would write in 1 Peter 4.12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And God's purpose in the suffering of his people is for their purification and for their perseverance, at least at two levels. Part of the purpose of suffering is to distinguish between who's a true follower of Jesus and who's just been pretending. And persecution tends to reveal that. And there's also a second level of purification that it's talking about, and that is true believers get progressively sanctified through suffering because they get to experience and express faith at new levels and faithfulness at new levels. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, talking about your salvation and your inheritance, in that you rejoice, Though now for a little while, as was necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, precious to God, precious to yourself, more precious than gold that perishes those tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see that the Apostle Peter here is really mimicking those last two verses. Not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you'll gain your life. Not a hair of your head will perish, of course, is a physical safety saying of the day being applied here in spiritual reality. It's not a promise that you're going to not suffer or be martyred, but rather it should lift our thoughts because by enduring itself, we're going to gain life. That is, we're going to experience more of real life and we're going to gain eternal life. Not that, you etern- not that you're earning it, but that you get to receive it and acquire it. And still, this all points to God's sovereignty that really nothing's going to happen to your body anyway without God allowing what happens to happen. Ultimately, Christians aren't going to perish because both body and soul are going to be resurrected in eternal glory. The important matter until Jesus' return, as you see in his own discourse, the important matter is seeing personal persecution and general distress in the world as opportunities for witnessing to the gospel. That's the important thing. That's how Luke would have us reflect upon Jesus' sermon on the end times here. How do you view trouble in your own life, trouble in other people's lives, troubles in the world? Don't be afraid, but speak up and be bold and make it happen that you speak openly about Jesus Christ and the gospel. The church should be taking all opportunities in the midst of a world in distress to speak about Jesus. Well, finally, Jesus talks about Jerusalem, and he goes back to the first question and says that, yes, the city's going to be captured soon in verse 20 to 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So yeah, Jerusalem's going to fall yet again, Jesus says in verses 20 to 21. God's vengeance and his purposes with the Gentiles will move forward. And so at the beginning, he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem under the Romans here, mainly Titus and his campaigns. Three groups of people are given instructions, the people in the Judea to flee to the mountains, get out of the area, the people in the city, the Jerusalemites, to get out, and those in the countryside nearby, don't go into the city, don't be near it, and destruction is going to spread farther and farther very rapidly. It all began in AD 69 when Titus took over command and people weren't permitted to leave the city any longer. We've already read about this in Luke's gospel about the fall of Jerusalem. It was actually only a few days ago in the storyline, but of course, as we're preaching through Luke, it seems like forever ago. But if you look in Luke 19, 41, it was just a few days, really, matter of days ago, that Jesus says, and when he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known in this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, 
and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It would be a horrible time for the Jewish people, although there was a special concern here, of course, for those that follow Jesus as the Messiah, as he's speaking. The followers of Jesus did what that he told them to do, and they fled. But why would Jesus predict this, and why would God do such a thing? It's stated because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. Visitation by God, visitation by his Messiah, visitation for the promised salvation. The prophets foretold, and Jesus warned repeatedly. This time of visitation refers to the whole time of life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And this fall of the city would be another event displaying God's holy judgment, just like the fall of Jerusalem back in the 6th century B.C. And judgment here is even pronounced against the weak and struggling. There'd be no mercy. Death and exile, just like Babylon all over again. And the time of repentance, Jesus is saying, is past, it seems. You see, and as we look on both of these things from our point in the history of redemption, we see that both of these falls of Jerusalem picture the final tribulation and the final day of the Lord and predict it. And we'll talk more about that next time when we get through it in the next part of the sermon of Jesus. But it's also going to be a time when the Gentiles will rule over the Jewish people. It was very near to them. It would be happening very shortly. And the world would continue in the grip of godless ones for ever since. But there's something else that's going on. More importantly, it would be a time of salvation among the peoples of the world. It would be a fulfillment, and that would take up the rest of the time until the very end. That's another message of the New Testament that the writers want us to understand. It's all over the prophets and all over the New Testament. In fact, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 speak to this specific reality that that's what's going on right now. Well, the city would be captured soon, but then the apostles would have a mission to do. They would have to take the gospel to the world. And so, of course, one application is to sympathize historically with the pain of the Christians, of our brothers and sisters at the time, and the hope that they had. And we can identify with that even today with the tribulations of the church and the sufferings of the church around the world and praying and helping for them. And there are always places that are going on. Right now, in the last, number, last month, many of my friends in northeast India are suffering exactly these types of things. The hand genocide taking place. The church is being destroyed. And there are places that you probably have friends too around the world. It's continually going on, and we need to be upholding them in prayer and praying for them, too, that they would take advantage of these times to do what Jesus said in verse 13, and that is, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. You know, it's true that interpreting in-time passages can be difficult, but the application is always easy. Catch that? The interpretation of the passages is almost always difficult, but the application is almost always easy. Yeah, there are going to be certain signs as mentioned in Scripture, but only as we get right on top of the return. But even these predictions with historical trajectory and accuracy is very, very difficult to figure out, but more on that next week or next section. This is part one of Jesus' sermon that I've entitled, The Church at Witness to a World in Distress. And the burden upon us is to take advantage of this opportunity of distress to bear witness. Part two 
is watching for Jesus. And that comes in verses 25 through 38. But in troubled times, we should be looking out for people's needs and seeking to meet them. But not just those needs that we see, but also to do it with an explicit faith and hope in Jesus Christ, a love and a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit in our soul overflowing, that we keep up the good work for the gospel of Jesus Christ in a world in distress. You see, if you go through all of these accounts, as I mentioned them, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, and in Mark, and in Luke, one similarity you're going to find the jump off the page at you is this, is that the mission that we've been talking about is discussed in all three accounts of the Sermon of Jesus. It's the matter of most importance. In Matthew 24, 14, it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Mark 13, 10, in the midst of this sermon, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And in our passage today, in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. The application is always easy. You see, one major purpose, again, for the delay of the return is the spread of the gospel, the kingdom by the people of God throughout the whole world. And notice that it's going to be carried out in the midst of suffering, a tribulation, distress, but the end will come, and the new order will eventually be birthed as the prophets speak. So finally, the focus of the church should not really be on some fantastical interpretations of signs. Not that we don't do responsible work in this area, but it should be on the Great Commission. You know, even the disciples, though they learned the lesson then, and they would eventually learn it perfectly, but... After Jesus' resurrection at the time of the ascension, they had to be reminded yet again of where their focus needs to be. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking the same question. He said to them, it's not for you to know. The times are seasons, but the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That is our concern, to witness to the ends of the earth. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we so look forward to your return. The glory, the great blessing, a blessing beyond our understanding and our imaginations the fullness of our salvation, the establishment of righteousness and justice and the dealing with evil finally, the removal of pain and suffering. We so look forward to your return and we do wish we could know the fine details. But we praise you that in your sovereignty and in your wisdom, you've hidden it in, from our eyes and given us the scriptures to increase our hope and to focus our attention on the mission that you have for us to do as your church, to bear witness to you. And we pray that you would give us at Calvary Church that strength, that fortitude, that boldness to witness to a world in distress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.